Amen. Well, that's good news, isn't it? All right, we're going to read um, Acts chapter 8, a passage from Acts chapter 8 as our scripture reading for this morning. So if you want to turn, um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 917. We're going to read verses 26 to 40. So a story about the early church as the gospel, the good news about Jesus is starting to spread. It's actually spreading through persecution. Saul is persecuting the church, and he ends up becoming a Christian and obviously becoming a missionary. Uh, but Philip is starting to take the gospel to other places, and here the Spirit of God leads him to what seems to be kind of an unlikely place, but it's it's wonderful passage, and you'll see soon why it connects with our sermon text for this morning. So page 917, Acts 8, 26 to 40, and if you wouldn't mind, please stand again in honor of God's word as I read, and you can follow along. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, well, if you want to turn in your Bibles so you're there when we get there, we are going to be looking at Isaiah 56 and 57. So if you're using the Bible in the pew, it's on page 616. And while you're turning there, okay, so we probably a lot of us have the Olympics on the brain lately, right? Pretty exciting stuff happening this Olympics, but there's another Olympics. I've referred to, to this before. It's been a while, but many of you are familiar with Eric Little, and 
uh, how he was this Scottish Olympic athlete. He was a gold medalist. Um, he also became a missionary to China. He ended up dying in China in an internment camp in 1945. And the movie Chariots of Fire is inspired. It's, it's a movie about his life. And there's that famous quote where he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So Eric Little, running, even though he was incredibly fast, he was Olympic gold medal fast, running wasn't his life. His identity and security wasn't wrapped up in his running. And so he was even able to not run on Sunday. He made a choice. That's why we remember him, um, to not run that 100-meter dash um, because of his convictions. So God was everything to Little. And so he was free to run with all his heart, and yet he was at peace whether he ran or didn't run, whether he won or didn't win. Now, the, the contrast in this story was a, an, a competitor of his named Harold Abrahams. And so in the movie, Liddell's security is contrasted with Abraham's restlessness and his anxiety. So he says at one point, I will raise my eyes. So these guys both ran the 100-meter dash. So it's just one shot down the one side of the, the track, right? He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide, my lane, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He asks himself. And then at another point, he says, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. So have you ever known that kind of restlessness? Do you know Liddell's sort of security and peace? Probably for most of us, it can be both and, right? Depending on the day. Well, God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows how prone we are to Abraham's-like restlessness, this Harold Abraham's guy. And he also knows how we need Eric Liddell-like peace, rest, so he gave us these chapters, actually, so that we can follow in Eric Liddell's Little's um, footsteps, running the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So a <clears throat> little orientation. You might be visiting here. We're diving in. We're, we're walking through the book of Isaiah, but it's a big book, and it can be confusing if you're not familiar with it. And here we are in chapters 56 and 57. So um, just a really quick little orientation. It's going to be really quick. The first 39 chapters of this book, you could call it the book of the king. And the king is actually God. Their king, the people of Israel, their king, Uzziah had died. Chapter 6, everything's unstable as a result. And, and yet the real problem is not the fact that their king had died or even the external threats from other kingdoms. The point was that they weren't trusting the king. They weren't trusting God. There was all these threats from other countries, military threats and whatnot, but the real problem was, was their own hearts. They were rebellious. They were sticking their fingers in their ears with God speaking to them. He knew what was best for them, and they're sticking their fingers in their ears. So Isaiah had a tough job to be preaching to this generation um, back in the ancient Near East. Okay, So they're rebelling, and they're going to be judge, they're going to, you know, 
reap what they've sown. Then in chapters 40 to 55, you could call it the book of the servant. Okay, so Isaiah prophesied. So he spoke to his generation all this judgment and warning, and they didn't listen, they didn't listen. But he also prophesied of a time, generations to come, that would finally begin to come to their senses and listen to God. They'd be in exile when they began to listen, but he prophesied this future comfort and hope through the work of a servant, the servant of the Lord. That's chapters 40 to 55. We just finished that. And then the end of the book, these last um, 10 or 11 chapters, 56 to 66, we could call it the book of the anointed conqueror, okay? And so Isaiah is now prophesying to a generation that's experienced the restoring work of the servant, but they're still waiting for the fullness of what's been promised. So they live in this kind of tension, this now but not yet tension, the already but not yet tension. So that's where we're located. So let's dive in now. Um, Point number one. And just for what it's worth, point number one is going to be a whole lot longer than point two and three. So if you think point number one, and oh my goodness, if two and three are as long as one, we're going to be here till three o'clock. Don't worry. Um, point number one is the longest one, okay? So living in between by grace through faith, chapter 56, verses one to eight. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So, you know, if you picked up a novel and jumped in at chapter 56 and didn't know anything about the previous 55 chapters, do you think that might affect how you understand the story? Yeah, it's going to, understand, it's going to affect how you understand the story. So you've got to realize that this is in the middle of some other important stuff. It's so important to see where we are in the flow of the book. Isaiah is not saying here in these first two verses that we enter into a covenant relationship with God by doing justice and righteousness. He's not saying, well, if you do this, then God might let you in. That's not what he's saying. This section is assuming it's built on what's come before, and what has come before is chapter 53, the work of the servant. Okay, that's that section that the, the eunuch was reading. Who's this guy? It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53.10. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Not his guilt, but our guilt. He shall see his offspring. We're going to become children of God by his grace. So out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, the Messiah, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So how do people get into relationship with God? How do we get right with God? How do we find peace with God? Well, we are given that status. We are justified in God's sight, not by our works, but by the work of Jesus on the cross. He died in our place. He suffered for our sins. Our sin and guilt was borne by him. And if we trust him, if we turn away from trying to do it on our own, our own self-justification projects like 
Harold Abrams, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. If we just repent of that, just forsake it, turn away from it, and trust in Jesus, he can save me, then we are reckoned righteous by faith in him. That's what the Bible says from beginning to end. By grace, through faith, in the gracious provision of God. Paul said it in Philippians 3 that he, he had this resume, this spiritual resume as a Pharisee. And he says, I'm not going to put any confidence in my own works and my own resume. It's all loss. It's rubbish. He says, I count it all as loss in, view, in order to know and gain Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or a couple other passages. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, he was sinless, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, you and me, that he might bring us to God. So we don't keep justice and do righteous in order to become righteous in God's sight, in order to be okay in God's sight. But once we are reckoned righteous, justified in his sight by faith in Jesus, then we want to follow the right path. Our heart is changed. Okay, So we want to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Like 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Okay? So that's how we live until the day when everything is set right. This world is a mess. I don't think I have to twist your arm to believe that, right? It's not like it's supposed to be. It's broken. Is God ever going to do anything about it? Well, he is doing lots about it. And one day he's going to come back and set everything right. So we do right. We do justly. We, we walk with him and we're an extension of his righteousness and justice and love to those around us as we follow Jesus because we're waiting for the day when the final deliverance will come when his kingdom will finally come in all of its fullness. So we, Christians, we live in this in-between between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The now, he's already done so much, and yet the not yet. So we, we've been made alive together with Christ. We're not spiritually dead anymore. You know, like a cut flower. We've been grafted back in. So we're, we've been made alive together with Christ, and yet we still die. And the final resurrection is not yet. Or you could say we're redeemed. We're set free from the penalty and the ruling power of sin. But we await the day when we're finally free of the power and the presence of sin completely. Anybody looking forward to that day? So the decisive battle against sin and Satan and death, like we sung about, has been won. Jesus is stronger. But... Don't we struggle still and we stumble? We still have to fight the good fight of the faith until Jesus comes back on the white horse and sets it all right. 
So we're living in this tension. It's tense, it's tense, isn't it? In between, there's challenges to the waiting, to the not yet period. We groan, we ache, we suffer, we struggle. So how are, how are we supposed to navigate this time in between? Well, verse 2 says, Blessed is the one who holds fast and keeps the Sabbath. So doing justice, keeping righteousness, keeping the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeping your hand from any evil, that's what the passage says here, but that might not be our first thought when we think of how we're supposed to navigate the life here on earth between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Keeping the Sabbath, would that be the first thing that you would think of bringing up? Well, most of us are not Jewish. We haven't lived in the world of the Bible enough to appreciate the meaning of the Sabbath. So to many of us, I don't know what your connotations are, but maybe keeping the Sabbath has connotations of some, you know, maybe arbitrary rules. You know, I'm, some people are a little too uptight about what you can and can't do on Sunday. Maybe you grew up and you couldn't wear shorts on Sunday or you couldn't do sports on Sunday or whatever, you know, some rules like this. Or maybe for others, you, you really take pride in keeping the Sabbath, and you're pretty big on what you will and won't do, and sometimes you feel kind of a smug superiority over others who are less serious about the Sabbath than you, and you're probably pretty critical of them as well. Well, both of those things are misunderstandings. The Sabbath in the Scripture is such a big deal, and that's the testimony of the Bible from start to finish. We need to understand the nature of the big dealness, what it means. So what was, what's the point of the Sabbath in the first place? Where's the first place it shows up? Who's the first one to keep the Sabbath? God. So is it because he's tired? Was he just worn out from... No, he's omnipotent. The Sabbath, the seventh day when God rested from his labors, he did in action what he had said in words when he said, good, 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 very good. So him ceasing from labor on the seventh day was the equivalent of saying, very good. It's, it's kind of in action demonstrating the very goodness of the provision. So the Sabbath for God meant it's perfect. It's enough. It's complete. And so Adam and Eve were supposed to keep the Sabbath by trusting in, resting in God's provision for them because it was good, 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 very good. And that's exactly what Satan struck at and said, God's holding out on you. So, keeping the Sabbath was supposed to be all along faith gone public. And breaking the Sabbath is like a public vote of no confidence in God to take care of you. So the Sabbath is a gift. It was given to us as a gift from God. It was made for us, not us for the Sabbath, like Jesus said. God didn't need his people to keep the Sabbath to keep him happy. The people of God needed to keep the Sabbath as a weekly reminder, kind of like a string around your finger, that God is good and he's going to take care of me. So we can rest in him. We can trust him. We don't have to take matters in our own hands. So... <clears throat> Think about Israel in the wilderness, right? When they came out of Egypt. And there was the manna thing. 
Why weren't they supposed to gather manna on the Sabbath? What was that supposed to say? Why was that such a big deal? It was a really big deal. If you read through that, if, if you violate that, that's a really big deal. Why is it such a big deal? It's because you're taking matters into your own hands. You're not trusting the Lord's provision. I'm going to take care of you. Trust me. You don't have to get up and anxiously toil on the Sabbath. I want to give you a gift, a day of rest. So I'm going to give you twice as much on Friday so that you don't need to. You can trust me on Saturday. You see? So God in the Sabbath is giving perfect provision for us. Keeping the Sabbath is trusting that provision. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. So, if you've been around in Isaiah, the big problem has been that the people of God were taking matters into their own hands. They were looking everywhere but to God for satisfaction, for security, for hope, for rest. So they were restless. They went about like a spiritual prostitute, offering themselves to the highest bidder. And we can do the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. We get fearful, we get anxious, and we look everywhere but up. We self-medicate all kinds of different ways. We run to these functional saviors. And that's because we don't know the rest that comes from trusting this perfectly gracious, wonderful provision that God supplies. You tracking? Okay. So... Let's talk about this suffering servant. Again, this is in the context of the flow of Isaiah, chapter 53, the perfect provision. The suffering servant lives the perfect life that we've failed to live. He dies the death that we deserve to die so that, we, so that he could come to us and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath rest. Take my yoke upon me. Upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is the perfect provision of the Father for all of our deepest needs. He's the source of our Sabbath rest. And so you actually keep the Sabbath on this side of the cross, you keep the Sabbath by trusting in Jesus, in the perfect provision of the Father, in the soul rest that He provides. So we take Jesus' yoke on us and we Verse 1, keep justice and do righteousness, not in order to quiet our guilty consciences and try to justify ourselves. Oh, I've got to outweigh the, the bad with the good. But we keep justice and do righteousness because Jesus has quieted our guilty consciences and justified us. And we want to follow him. We know the blessing. Blessed is the man, like it says in verse 2 here. We know the blessing of holding fast to him. That is Sabbath rest. And so in him, through him, we find rest for our souls. We don't want to profane his name. We want to keep our hands, verse 2, from evil because we're walking hand in hand with Jesus. So do you see how that meaning of the Sabbath, do you see why that's so central? If that's what the Sabbath means, it's huge because it's an issue of whether or not you're going to trust God. Trust his provision. Is Jesus enough for us? So, that Sabbath rest in him through him, we find rest for our souls. 
And I know that we've spent a disproportionate amount of time on these few verses, but it's on purpose, okay, because it sets the tone for the whole of these two chapters. This is how, it's all about how we live out this waiting period, this kind of now but not yet period between the coming of the suffering servant so that we could be accounted righteous to his second coming as conquering king when everything will be set right. So we live in between in a time of waiting and we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. We're supposed to, supposed to do righteousness and keep justice. And we do that not in our own strength, but we do that by trusting the perfect provision of God through Jesus. So what we do is we look back in faith looking at that perfect provision for our salvation. And we look forward in faith because there's all these promises that Jesus won for us on the cross. Like, this is just how we live as, as Christians. You got, do, do you realize this? We live in the present. You and I, we live in the present, and we're constantly looking back and looking forward. So some of you might be plagued in the present by guilt, shame, etc. And that past that you're hung up on impacts your present and it paralyzes you. Or some of you are just so fearful and anxious of what might happen and that fear and anxiety trickles back to the present. Right? You see how that works? So living by faith in the perfect provision of God in the present, keeping the Sabbath, is looking back God has provided perfectly for me. It's good, good, very good. Jesus has been provided for us. All my deepest needs are met in him. And I look forward, and I, I look forward into a time of waiting and maybe uncertainty, and there's all these promises. I'm not going to be alone. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. He's my shepherd. I won't want. And so you can look forward in faith. So you can look back in fear. You can look forward in fear and freak out in the present. Or you can look back in faith at the perfect provision. You can look forward in faith at these sweet promises, and you can be at rest. And you can do righteousness and keep justice and love precisely because your rest is in Jesus. Does that make sense? So, that's how we're supposed to live 24-7. But it isn't easy. It's easy to doubt, isn't it? Well, watch where Isaiah goes next. Look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord. So this foreigner has already become a member of the covenant community. He said, I want to be a part of this. I want to worship the Lord. So let not that foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, trusting my provision, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is just awesome. Okay? Remember that scripture reading from Acts 8? The eunuch on the road? So he's reading Isaiah 53, a couple chapters earlier, in God's providence. The Spirit tells Philip, hey, go run, <laughs> run by that chariot. 
and he hears Isaiah 53 being read, and he explains it to him, the gospel about Jesus, because Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. And this eunuch believes, and he becomes a follower of Jesus, and he says, well, there's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? So he's baptized, and when he comes out of the water, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Who, who's this eunuch? I don't think I need to explain what a eunuch is, do I? Right? Sexually altered, and it could be by birth deformity, by an accident, or by choice. Okay? In the ancient Near East, it could be even by choice. So here's this man from Ethiopia. Men like this were often in positions of power in the ancient world because they, they weren't threats in certain important ways. So he's this high court official. He's like a CFO. He's in charge of all the treasury or a comptroller or something like that. He's, he's a big shot in this kingdom. It is possible that he traded his ability to procreate for money and power and prestige and position. So he traded a long-term legacy for short-term gain and position and success. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody do that today? There's a lot of wealthy people in the world who have sacrificed lots of good things to get ahead, or people that are not wealthy that tried. I mean, we want to make a mark. We want to be remembered. We want to make a difference, and we can get it all wrong so easily, just like Abraham's statement. Like, you don't even know who that guy is apart from Eric Little. The only reason we know Harold Abraham's is, is because of Eric Little. He got it wrong, and we don't even remember him. So this guy's got money, power, influence, and yet he's not satisfied, and he's going to Jerusalem to worship. Now, maybe it was, you know, diplomatic, something or other. Who knows? But God's using this thing to grab a hold of this guy. This is a long trip. So, if you know the Bible, back in Deuteronomy 23, eunuchs weren't allowed into the presence of God. Okay? Forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord. So you can imagine, as this guy begins to understand the flow of the Bible, you can imagine some of the doubts that would rise up for him. I'm damaged goods. What right do I have to approach the holy presence of God? I'm an outsider. You know, maybe I can come part of the way in, but I'm probably going to be kind of like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, maybe God just barely puts up with me. I, you know, I've struggled with this or that or the other thing so many times. I just, maybe I'm, maybe I'm in, but I'm like relegated to the periphery. Can you imagine how encouraging this would be to this justified eunuch? Isaiah 53, he reads it, Philip explains it, he believes it. Yes, I want to be baptized. But God knew what might come up, just like it comes up for us. You know, we can be thrilled when we first become a Christian, and then we can go along and we continue to struggle, and the doubts and the struggles rise. And God put this in here, I think, for that guy and for the rest of us. So just think, imagine you're this guy, and he reads 
the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it, holds fast my covenant, these I'll bring to my holy mountain. Wait a second. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, hold, I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What? Can you imagine how encouraging that was to him? And that's, an, that's meant to be encouraging to all of us who might struggle with thinking that we're damaged goods or that we're probably going to be second-class citizens in the kingdom. So this is like assurance of God's love for you and full welcome into his family for all of us. I mean, just look at the progression in verses 6 to 7. The foreigners who join themselves to minister to me, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, these I will bring to my holy mountain. So kind of coming up to to Jerusalem on the hill there, the, the city of God. These I will bring to my city and make them joyful in my house my temple, my house, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. Do you see how you're still coming further up and further in? Their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So eunuchs originally weren't allowed to join the assembly. Now, because of the work of the servant, because of Jesus' work, what's going to happen? They come into the city, into the house. They've got a place in the family. And all the way to the altar and the sacrifices are acceptable because of the work of the servant, because of his sacrifice in our place. So, God accepts me as I am. Damaged goods as I am. I can rest. God's house, his family, it's my family. It's my family. I've got a place here. I belong here. That's what happens when you believe the gospel? You're brought home to God and to his people. Look at verse 8. The Lord God who, declare, who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's just like Jesus said, I have, sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So all of this is here for our assurance of faith that we, we don't kind of cower out at the door. We can come into, approach the throne of grace with confidence because of Jesus, our high priest. And we can be confident that we'll receive mercy and grace to help us in our need because of his grace. So you can imagine the foreigners, but I think we do the same. We can wonder about the heart of God. You know, how, how does God feel about me? And God wants all of us to know his heart here. He wants us to know he has made the perfect provision, chapter 53, so that we can live in this in-between time of tension, already but not yet. We can live there with peace and rest, knowing that we've been brought all the way in. We can have that assurance he wants us to live out this righteousness and justice from a place of security, not scrambling to get into God's good graces because we feel like we're constantly on trial. So the logic of the gospel is keep on 
because the Lord will keep you. The logic of the gospel is do righteousness because the Lord has done it. The logic of the gospel is work out your salvation because God is at work. And he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it so you can keep working it out. The logic of the gospel is hold on because the Lord's not going to let go of you. So anyone can get in on this. That's the whole point. It's the whole point of highlighting a foreigner and a eunuch. Anybody can get in on this. This is this fabulous forever family for everyone, for all the nations, which makes sense on the heels of our passage last week in chapter 55. Hey, over here, 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Are you, are you thirsty? Spiritually thirsty? I know you've been running to all the wrong places to satisfy your thirst, but hey, over here, Jesus can satisfy your thirst. Just like he said, I'm the living water. Whoever comes to me will never ever hunger, will, will never ever thirst. So, can imagine this Ethiopian eunuch, if he kept reading after he was baptized, how, I mean, I can just imagine the tears starting to flow when he hits chapter 56. But not just for him, it's for us. Now, even though the gospel is inclusive, hey, anyone can come, it's open to all, it's also exclusive. There's a way, there's one way in. So, the hope and the promises of the gospel are not for those who proudly, selfishly reject this path. So there is a narrow road that leads to life. So all the harsh words and warnings in chapters 56 and 57 are for those who selfishly, pridefully seek their own gain rather than doing righteousness. So like I said, point number one was really long. These next two points are going to be short because the rest of these chapters basically just unpack the simple truth that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so look at it here. First, he opposes the proud and brazenly unfaithful. We'll just read a few sample verses here. Look at verse 9. And again, these are metaphors. This is poetry, so metaphorical stuff going on here. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. See, these are leaders that should be watching for the threats and warning the people of God, the flock of God. They're all without knowledge. They're silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. You can imagine leaders using their position to whoop it up. They're, they're, instead of protecting the sheep, they're feeding themselves on the sheep. That's the whole point. So they're proud and they're selfish, which, again, shouldn't surprise us because, you know what, health, wealth, hucksters continue to fleece the sheep in our day and age. There are politicians that use faith in every election just about, as a piece of leverage or a means of identification with certain constituencies. It's opportunism. And then there's others that just brazenly flirt with the world. Look at verse 57.7. Again, we're not going to go through all of this, but oftentimes the Bible uses um, 
whoredom as a, an illustration, a metaphor for unfaithfulness to God. Verse 7, on a high, mount, high and lofty mountain, you've set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. So bowing down to other gods is like spiritual infidelity. Again, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said that the tares would grow up with the wheat. We should be warned, because this is, this is being spoken to the, the people of God. This isn't just, well, you guys are faithful, and then out there. He's warning some of the people that claim to be believers are the ones that are fleecing the sheep or acting in this spiritually unfaithful way. So we should be warned to make sure that we're, we're the real thing. So what we ought to be asking is, do, is this pride or infidelity present in my heart? Because if, if I'm living this selfish pride or this brazen infidelity, I must not know that God's enough. I must not believe that his provision and his grace is satisfying enough. Do you see how it comes right back to Sabbath rest? Restlessness leads to selfishness and infidelity. But when we know that Jesus is enough, give me Christ or I die, but if I have Christ, I've got everything, that's enough, and I'm at peace. I can be satisfied in him, at rest in him. So, God opposes the proud, and then this whole section ends with God gives grace to the humble and contrite, verses 14 to 21. Look at the end of verse 13. But he who takes refuge in me, contrast with the prideful and unfaithful ones, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain, and it shall be said, be, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. I mean, this is just the heart of God. He's open. He wants us to come. He's removing every obstacle. We're the ones that have the hang-ups and the hesitations. Look at who we're dealing with here. Look at verse 15. We're just going to camp out here for a minute and then be done. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, which we know he's transcendent. He's the holy, holy, holy God. Isaiah saw his glory in chapter 6 and felt like he was coming apart at the seams. But look how sweet it, it, how it finishes here. And also, I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So this high and holy one, awesome God, in Isaiah 6, it's not even God's voice that shakes the threshold. It's the angels' voices. So you can imagine, again, this just awesome, majestic God, and yet he dwells with us to revive us. And the ultimate proof of that, that that's his heart, that that's who, he's, who he is, is the suffering servant again. Talk about dwelling with us, to revive us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us precisely because he wanted to revive the lowly, to revive the contrite. So anybody need revival this morning? New life, renewal, refreshment, rest, peace. The end of this chapter says there's no peace for the wicked. Those who proudly, selfishly, unfaithfully resist God, they don't seek him for soul satisfaction. They look everywhere else for it. But if we humble ourselves and own our need, acknowledge our need, 
and realize that the perfect provision, looking back in faith, the perfect provision has been given to us. This high and holy God, he came low through the incarnation, the cross, because he wanted to heal us and speak peace to those who were far away and to those who were near. He wanted to heal us. So we don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be self-promoting. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to scramble. We don't have to look anywhere else. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt us in due time. So we live now in this already but not yet. We look back, perfect provision, this humble, open God that gave everything for us. We can be secure, we can be at peace, and he promises to exalt us one day. And so we can look back in faith, we can look forward in faith, and we can rest right now in the present. And we can do justice. And we can, we can do justly. We can love mercy. And we can walk humbly with our God. Let's do that. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to behold you in all of your glory. You are great and glorious and you are humble. And you condescend to give us grace. And so I pray that we would be thrilled and encouraged by the fact that you, the high and holy one, also dwell with the lowly and contrite of spirit. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that you would revive and refresh us, and that we would be secure in your love and your grace, and that we would move forward as your hands and feet doing justly, doing righteously, not in order to gain your favor, but because we've already been given it. In Jesus' name, amen.